history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure part of art history. Hello dear listeners, I'm your host, Najah, and in this podcast we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite Algerian artists, and the context in which she lived and practiced her art in, aka colonized Algeria, and then through the independence of the country. Hopefully this will be an episode that will join both lesser known parts of art history, but will also shed a light on the role of imperialism in this field. Let's begin. With bright and contrasting colors and bold lines, the work of Bayam Hayatin is well known in certain artistic circles, especially those that are interested in the history of Algerian art, surrealism or modern art. Nonetheless, it's still a name that's often unknown to the general public or to someone who only has a passing knowledge of art history. Which is, in my opinion, a shame that such a talented artist who had such a unique vision, had mostly been relegated to obscurity, while her Western counterparts, that were active at the same time that she was, often have entire courses being dedicated on their arts and lives. Books upon books have been written on Picasso or Marcel Duchamp. Names such as René Madrid are being remembered by history and their works are still very much recognizable by the average person. Baya Mehedin, who simply went by the name Baya, an Algerian pictorial artist who drew masterpieces that were considered to be on the same level as Matisse and Picasso, while she was at the very young age of 16 years old. Her paintings had a very distinct and recognizable style, It's very easy to single out a piece that she created, yet neither her art nor her story are remembered by history, or at least white Western art history, and the field of art history at the same level as these men. Born in 1931 in Borjad on the outskirts of Algiers, Bayem Hedin lived in an Algeria who had just recently passed the 100th anniversary of the French colonization. Life in Algeria during that time was not easy for the native Algerians. The French people built villas and summer houses and came to enjoy the sun and warmth as well as the exoticness of the quote-unquote Orient. The Algerian colonies were therefore French consumptions. The Algerian colonies were therefore French consumption of its resources, of its land, of its people. After the deaths of her parents, the young Baya ended up being taken in by the French family who used to employ her grandmother as a maid. 
the details are a bit murky there. And every source that I have been able to find seems to contradict themselves when it comes up with these specific details of whether she was only being taken in as a servant or if she ended up being actually adopted by this French family. What everyone seems to agree on is that Baya lived her younger years with this French family. This was the Algeria of the 1940s, where independence was only still a vague dream that seemed more like smoke and shadows. Algeria has been colonized by France from 1830 to 1962, which is a full, uninterrupted 130 years of colonization, oppression and injustice. 1962 wasn't that long ago. I just want to stress how recent this all was, and how much violence was put upon the Algerian people, as well as the various colonies that France had. I always find it very ironic how France is heralded for being the example of democracy and freedom. After taking down their monarchy in 1789, But this goes on to show that this sort of thing is only valid when it comes to white people. The French had proven time and time again, especially during the 19th century and the early 20th century, that their vision of democracy, of who deserves to have the dignity of being a person, didn't quite include non-white people. And this is how we can have the dichotomy of being known as a country who has made great steps toward democracy, freedom, and justice, and yet still being an imperialist power who has colonized many, many countries. If you look up which countries France has colonized, it includes all of North Africa, West African countries, territories in India, China, Sri Lanka, Syria, Lebanon, Guadeloupe, and so forth, and so on. I think it's important to talk about how this double standard existed back then, and still very much exists today, albeit in a very different way. This is why the lives of non-white people weren't deemed as important. This is why the art and creativity of non-white people wasn't deemed as valuable. The incident that started the colonization of Algeria is known as the Flywished Incident, which happened in the spring of 1827. Entire books could be and have been written on the subject of Algerian colonization. But I'm an art historian and not a historian historian. (laughs) But to simplify things, what happened is that France refused to settle an old debt that they owed to the city of Algiers. And the day of Algiers got understandably annoyed and dismissed them away with his flywist. Tired of the excuses they kept giving for why they couldn't pay back their debts. Which is what kick-started the colonization of Algeria because some people are fragile and cannot take no for an answer. What's important to know is that France's fortune was built on the back of its colonies, stealing the resources from all of their territories. The Algerian War and the independence were obtained with a lot of fight, 
violence and blood. Because unfortunately, France did not want to relinquish the power it held over Algeria, which is why the revolution was never going to be peaceful or quiet. Unfortunately, we're not in a world where you can just reason with imperialist powers and they subsequently go, Oops, my bad, let me give you back your freedom real quick. I mean, it would be good, like if they had any sense of moral, but we've established that they don't, so that's that. Freedom has been bloody and violent and earned by the countless freedom fighters from the beginning of decolonization until the end of the Algerian War in 1962. But during the 1940s, all of this was still a dream. The reality Baya lived in was different. During the 1940s, it was still a common thing for French people to own villas and summer houses in the Algerian colony. And it was still a common thing to hire the natives to be their servants, which is how Yon Baya found herself as a servant in the house of Marguerite Kemina. She did give the young Baya the space to explore her art when she saw how talented she was. Camina loved art and was also an art collector. Therefore, she took it upon herself to give the young girl the opportunity she thought she deserved, which is all good in itself. But when you dig deeper, I feel like it can get a bit pervasive. So often, the concept of the good white person who is just here to help the poor person of color who doesn't know any better. The sources about Marguerite Camina often refer to her as a fairy godmother to Baya, who took her and made her a shiny little successful artist of her. When the truth is that Baya was an accomplished artist in her own right, and the reason she wouldn't have had access to the opportunity and resources would be because of systemic racism and imperialism. And because of that, it just feels a bit thoughtless to pretend that these factors do not come into play. Maybe Kamina's motives were really just about loving art and giving a young girl the chances that she wouldn't have had otherwise. But I do still think that as a white French woman, living in the colonial French Algeria, there was a power imbalance and a system in place that is worth thinking about. There is definitely something to be said about the white savior complex, about how non-white people and quote-unquote underdeveloped countries can only flourish with the help of the benevolent white person. This is truly an example of a colonialist attitude. During a short stay in Algiers, gallery and art enthusiast Amy May fell in love with her artwork and decided to give her a solo show at Les Galeries May. A solo exhibit is the dream of many artists, and yet Bayer had one when she was only 16 years old. The work she did was so innovative and unique that it really did make a very strong impression on many great figures that were part of the Parisian artistic circle. For example, the introduction to Bayer's exhibition catalogue was even written by André Breton, one of the main figures of the Surrealist movement in France. 
Her art was very stylistically unique and depicted scenes and elements that were important to the young artist. And the paintings she produced were very much in line with the surrealist genre, which is why her work had been presented during the context of the Exposition Internationale du Surrealisme, or International Exhibit of Surrealism. The art she made was also very, quote-unquote, Algerian, in the way she used traditional Algerian ceramics, textiles, and patterns as the main inspiration for her paintings. She used materials such as watercolors, gouache, and ceramics. Her paintings were bold and vibrant. The colorful images are inspired by her daily life as an Algerian woman, by the world she was living in and experiencing. I think it's very important to mention that Baya's work was very feminine, in the sense that it simply depicted no men, just women. Her main inspirations have therefore always been women and Algeria. It's possible to see this as a way of centering herself, as well as her perspective, in a world that often didn't care for her or her voice especially as a woman living in a colonized country, and she created paintings that were imbued with her own unique vision. It was the world as perceived by an Algerian woman, and that made it unique and important. In a time when her voice wasn't listened to, the subject of her paintings were always women and Algeria, in the most mundane and yet beautiful sense. Artistically, she had a very distinctive style that did very much signal the early beginnings of the Algerian movement of modern art during the late 1940s. As later said by the Algerian writer Kateb Yassin, her visual aesthetic did stay constant from the beginning of her career until the end of her life. The pictural aesthetic of the woman she depicted was far from being figurative and was more of an abstract representation of people and natural elements that were imbued in her paintings. The colors she used were all vibrant, and very much often found in natural elements, burnt oranges and sage greens, vibrant blues like the sea, and red. The colors that are used in her paintings are also often ones that are typically used in Algerian ceramic work. When she got married to musician Al-Hajj Mahfoud Mehedin in 1953, music also began taking a bigger part in the work she was doing, blending in the subjects and thematics that have always been an undercurrent of her work, nature, the traditional arts and crafts of Algeria, her paintings were, stylistically speaking, classified as naive art, which was the genre that usually designates art created by artists who often lack the classical and formal training. It frequently also describes an art that has a certain kind of innocence and childlike quality and vision to it. This genre is very much more often used by artists that are more working class and do not have the means to afford the formal training. 
but I have come to see in my research that this term is often used to refer to non-Western artists. No matter the actual genre of the art they create, they often do not have the classical artistic training, or if they are artistically trained, it's not in a way that is considered like a form of valid training by Western art circles. Non-white artists have historically been excluded from formal and official institutions of art. And while it is absolutely changing, those institutions still largely remain very much white, and the field of art and art history continues to be. This exclusion of non-white people from those institutions also further the systemic racism that is in place. It's just a vicious circle of racism and white Eurocentric views being pushed to the front. So the classification of bias painting as naive or primitive art shows a very condescending perspective to non-Western art, especially since her art figures very firmly within the realm of surrealism and modern art. In my personal opinion, I think her work really does fall within the realm of the main movement of the first half of the 20th century. The work she created was very relevant for the period she was in. Modern art, usually defined by being between 1870 to roughly 1940, even though the dates do change from country to country. I think this can also illustrate another way the world of art and art history is very Eurocentric, because the dates for the art movement are usually defined by how they existed within the Western world, when the dates don't quite match up in other parts of the world. And we rarely talk about how a certain art movement existed in non-Western countries and the shape they took. For example, the way Impressionism was not a movement that only existed in France with the Claude Monet of this world, but also existed in Japan with artists such as Kuroda Seiki and Kume Keishiro. The way that movement declined itself in Japan was very different from the way it did in Europe. And yet, there's often no mention of it when we talk of Impressionism during art history classes. It's one of the most recognizable artistic genres, and yet, there's very much a tendency to only stick to Europe. Baya's work was also definitely viewed through an Orientalism lens when it comes to the appreciation and analysis of the work she created and also of her as an artist. I explained more in detail about the concept of Orientalism in an article I wrote a while ago, but very generally. Orientalism is the way the West views the Eastern other, and how it creates its own identity by posing it opposite the quote-unquote Orient. The Orient in the Western imagery is an amalgam of 
including and not limited to North African, Arab, Indian, and Chinese cultures in a sort of vast, vaguely oriental world. So it's through this lens that Bayer's art was considered. You only have to read the words André Breton says about her, all very appreciative and effusive, to understand that despite the kind and positive words he uses, it's also very much Orientalist. He uses references to the Arabian Nights, to her Berber imagination, to her being the epitome of a childlike innocence with a, quote, a simple unfragmented consciousness, unquote. So despite the critical acclaim that Baya received while she was in France, the way her art was viewed was impossible to be dissociated from the fact that it was the art of an Algerian woman being shown to a French public, while Algeria was still colonized. It is in 1948 that the young Baya meets Pablo Picasso at the Atelier Madura, and history understands that he was so charmed by Baya's painting and work that he went on to work on his series of paintings, The Woman of Algiers. But Picasso has become a bit of a controversial figure in art history in the latest years, and for good reasons. As people became bolder in calling out his history of cultural appropriation within the field of art history, the narrative brightly shifted from Picasso being a genius artist to a white man who profited from the art of non-Western artists, specifically from sub-Saharan African artists, to further his career. Picasso has made his fortune and his worldwide recognition out of bastardized copies of African art. I said what I said. <laughs> I think it's a very special kind of violence. African art is being devalued. But when it's made by a white man, it suddenly has merit. Several artistic movements of the first half of the 20th century were heavily inspired by African artists. A year after her marriage in 1953, the war for independence started. From 1954 to 1962, a revolution and a war happened for the Algerians to free themselves from the French imperialist power. Bayer stopped making art at that moment. People do speculate whether she stopped making art to take care of her family or if it was by solidarity with the independence movement. But needless to say, she didn't create any art during those years. In 1962, the Algerian people got their independence. After eight years of war, of fighting for justice, they finally managed to do it. But traces and consequences of the French colonization are still felt to this day. And I do think that it will still take a lot of time to unravel the consequences of imperialism. Art history as a field can be compared to that, slightly, in a very oblique way. 
Art history has been created in a very Eurocentric perspective, and it worked like that for hundreds of years. It's then logical to think that it will take an equally long time to deconstruct and to unlearn. It was built by white people with a very white gaze upon the world and art. Art history is a discipline that I love, but really doesn't need to be. I don't like to say decolonized, but it needs to be less white, and the perspectives need to change on a global level. The perspective I offer, though, is strictly one of a woman of color who loves art and art history, and who studied it in a Western country, and who has constantly evolved in a predominantly white sphere when it comes to art history. The art history field that I know is very white and very Western-centric. In my research, I have seen a lot of articles describing the work of Baya Mahedin using various words such as tribal and primitive, which I'm pleased, let's not. I take issue with this word because it honestly doesn't mean anything much. It's the same thing as using the word interesting when you are trying to describe or critique a piece of media. It really doesn't say anything meaningful about the work. But those words, tribal and primitive, do have a very rationalized connotation. They say tribal and primitive, but what they really mean is not white and seems vaguely African. And yet, so often, a deeper analysis of these type of words could be done, and should be done, but these words are very shallow. I just think there needs to be a whole rethinking of the vocabulary we use to talk and describe non-Western art. Words such as tribal, primitive, naive. Words that all seem very condescending and pejorative and is very much a consequence of the white and western lands through which a lot of the art is studied. There is work that is being currently done on this level, but there is still so much to be done. The gaze on art history is still very much white, whether it's at the institutional level, universities, museums, or within the galleries, or the publications on art and art history. The scope of what is prioritized as subjects of interest is very much set in a limited North American and European scope. Maybe now and then you will find a class that's being given on non-Western art history. But during my studies, there were four, one, two, three, four, mandatory classes on the history of art in Canada, and yet no mandatory classes on any kind of non-Western art. Even in those classes on Canadian art history, we would just go very quickly on the subject of Indigenous art history and immediately return to focus on white Canadians. The discipline of art history is very navel-gazing for white people. When you study art history, people really love to think of the field and of themselves as being open-minded and progressive. The reality of it, truly, 
is that while some steps are being taken to build a more diverse and inclusive field, it's that it's really not at the moment. There's rarely any representation in the professorial course, and if there are, it feels very much tokenized. The one professor who is a person of color often feels like they're used as a diversity point by the institution. These people are often specialized in a subject that looks relevant to their culture. And while there's nothing wrong with that, and it's very understandable that one would want to shed light on a specific part of art history that does feel more personal to them. It would also be fun to normalize people of colors being professors of all kinds of art history. White people have the scope to be able to study and teach everything. Meanwhile, it often feels like people of color within the field are stuck in a very specific role. For example, if you have one black professor in your university, that professor will probably be the expert on Caribbean art or post-colonialist art. If you have an Arab professor, here is your new Islamic art professor. It feels very limiting. And I think it would just be fun to have these perspectives being welcomed in the field of art history. We need to stop putting people of color in convenient boxes for white people to understand and to only expect them to specialize in a certain field of art history. So often art historians of color are pigeonholed in a certain subject or specialty. The same way the media and art created by people of color should not necessarily be about their pain. Art historians of colors should not have these expectations set on them. Unfortunately though, the focus is being given to a very white art history. While completely ignoring the artistic contributions of non-white artists and non-white civilizations, it is very tone-deaf to teach and praise Picasso without talking about the cultural appropriation and theft that he has done of African art and artists, and yet this is what we usually face. It's really fascinating to know that a woman can have a wildly successful career in art on a professional level, selling art at a very high price, having solo exhibits, teaching and being recognized during her time as someone who is important within the field of art. And yet I find it so mind-boggling how none of this translated to the history books. Art history, as all histories are, is written and it's chosen. And it's very disingenuous to pretend otherwise, that history is something that we stumble upon and is simply factual. When it has been something that has constantly been written and rewritten with a very distant perspective in mind, History is indeed made up of facts, but it's important to keep in mind who decides to choose which facts to highlight, what voices to uplift, and what voices to silence. Within the context of art history, which artists and which pieces of art were elevated and showcased, and which ones were ignored, the choices might be unconscious but they're made in a very white environment and are not happening within a vacuum. 
it didn't just so happen that white men are the ones who are being remembered in history, while marginalized people are being forgotten. It's built into the core system of the discipline, hence systemic racism. And this is why Eurocentric views are so prevalent in the way we approach art history. And it has been so pervasive because it's considered as the neutral view on art history, when it is not. I do love art history and I do love talking about it in its entirety. The good, the bad, the mundane and everything else. And this is why I have this podcast, so I can do that. But I just hope that the future brings a more open environment to study art history with a more diverse and inclusive field and that people do feel welcome to get involved in. Art history as a whole is still very white and closed off to marginalized communities. And I do hope that the future will show change in a direction that's more inclusive and diverse in a way that's concrete Words are important, but ultimately are useless without real action being taken to foster a more inclusive environment on every level. Whether it's about the artists, the students, the academics, the critiques, the publications, the museums, and so on. There needs to be an upheaval and reform of the whole entire discipline to stop centering only a white perspective on art history. And now we're going back on track. her marriage, Baya moved to Blida, a city on the outskirts of Algiers, with her family. She spent some years focusing on her family and children, but after her husband died, she decided to go back to her career as an artist. She continued to create paintings and art after the Algerian independence, exhibiting in the National Fine Arts Museum in Algiers, creating art that continued to reflect her and the context she lived in. She also went on to teach at the Academy of Fine Arts of Algiers during her later years. She continued to make art long after the exhibit she had in Paris, long after she left the circles of those prominent artists such as Picasso and Matisse. She died in 1998 after a long life of art and creation. Through the French colonization and through the independence, through all of it. She is remembered by the Algerian public as one of its foremost modern artists. And there has been exhibits of her work in Algeria and abroad. But as much as there has been a renewal of interest for her work, independently of her historical link to prevalent male white artists. I still wish a better place was given to her in art history, because she really deserves it. Before we go, I put a bunch of relevant resources on today's subject in the show notes as usual. 
As always, all the relevant images will also be on all of our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by yours truly, Meta. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash Najah, N-A-D-J-A-H. I also want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Vivia Sala, Anika Pechinuyan, Jack, Miuk, Sam Hurst, Jenny, Jay Harker, as well as Natalie. Thank you so much for making the work I do with this podcast possible. And today's recommendation of the day is The Sun, Ya Raya, by Dahman Harashi. On this, my very dear listeners, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And I will see you again very soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.